everyone, and welcome back to Burn Foreman's podcast series. My name is Ed Snow, and I'm a partner in the firm's Atlanta office, where I focus my practice on two areas, commercial lending and electronic signatures. We are very excited to expand our series on e-signatures and continue part two of our discussions on the topic of electronic contracts being admitted into courtroom evidence. Since there is a lot to talk about on this topic, we wanted to break this up into two parts. For this discussion, I'm joined by my colleague, Jonathan Sykes. Jonathan is a partner in Byrne Foreman's Orlando office and a member of our firm's Creditors' Rights and Bankruptcy Practice Group. Jonathan's practice focuses on a wide variety of bankruptcy and litigation matters, including debtor, creditor, and trustee representation in Chapter 11, 13, and 7 bankruptcy proceedings, and in state and federal court litigation. In our prior episode, our discussion left off talking about ways electronic signatures can be authenticated in order to be entered as courtroom evidence. We want to jump back into that conversation and discuss how the authentication process may go wrong, how the original writing rule can come into play, and what happens if the opposing party denies signing an electronic signature. So the process of authentication seems like it's it's very doable, can be done easily enough. Uh, but I suspect now and then it goes wrong. Something goes wrong. How can you can you explain how that might happen and how people can protect themselves if something goes awry or from going awry? Absolutely. You know, for every good case out there, an evidentiary issue, there's another one or maybe two more of where it went really, really wrong. And a lawyer lost a big case because of a really simple mistake. So let's talk about a couple of those. And I think the theme here is going to be that if it goes wrong, it's probably because you waited or the lawyer waited until the trial to authenticate an electronic contract or a record and just simply wasn't prepared to properly authenticate at the trial. Because as we've already discussed, Generally, courts are going to apply existing evidentiary rules to electronic contracts and records. They're not going to want to create a whole new body of case law. So with that said, courts are holding lawyers more accountable for not following those fundamental rules in the context of electronic records. So a perfect example of a lawyer's worst day is in the case of Enray v. Venhe, which was a, a bankruptcy case in 2005 that came out of the Ninth Circuit. The bankruptcy appellate panel, which is the body of appellate judges in the Ninth Circuit that hear appeals of bankruptcy cases in the Ninth Circuit, affirmed in that case the bankruptcy court's rejection of American Express's attempt to authenticate computerized account records, similar to the ones we were just discussing, computerized loan payment histories. So what I think what makes this case worst of all is that the other side never objected to the admission of those electronic records. It was the court on its own who questioned the witness from American Express about his foundation for authenticating the records. The testifying witness from American Express did not have personal knowledge 
of the creation or contents of the records. But the court obviously still questioned the witness and asked him to provide factually specific testimony about, at the very least, the process by which the records were created and maintained. As I said a minute ago, if you cannot produce a witness with personal knowledge of how a particular document was created or, or, or personal knowledge of the creation of a contract or record, then you need to have someone with personal knowledge of the process by which that electronic record is created and maintained. So the American Express witness was unable to provide the required testimony at trial, but the court, all of its generosity, and now that bell had been rung and it could not have been unrung, allowed American Express to submit a post-trial declaration to then authenticate the record through a witness with personal knowledge of the process. Unfortunately for American Express, that post-trial declaration was also defective because it failed to establish the declarant's qualifications to testify about whether and to what extent the witness was familiar with American Express's computer record-keeping systems. For all the court knew, the declarant could have been a seasoned computer professional or a janitor at American Express. So upon further decision, the bankruptcy court denied admissibility of electronic records, and American Express lost. They appealed, and the appellate court affirmed, holding, and this is a quotation, regardless of the question of the declarant's qualifications, the trial court also ruled that the declaration was deficient as to basic foundational requirements for admission of electronic records, noting particularly the need to show the accuracy of the computer in the retention and retrieval of the information at issue. So the declarant needs to not only be familiar with the computer system in the process by which the electronic records are created, so he or she also needs to be familiar with and have personal knowledge of how accurate that process is. In the American Express case, the declaration merely identified the makes and models of the equipment, named the software, noted that some of the software was customized, and asserted that the hardware and software are standard for the industry. There was no information in the declaration regarding American Express's own computer policy and system control procedures, including control of access to the pertinent databases, control of access to the pertinent programs, recording and logging of changes to the data, backup practices, and audit procedures utilized to assure the continuing integrity of the records. Certainly all these matters would be pertinent to the accuracy of the computer in the retention and retrieval of the information at issue. My personal take on this decision is that I think a lot of the stigma we had previously talked about crept into this holding, and that if American Express had had its ducks in a row at trial, had a witness there that had personal knowledge of how their computerized records were created, that we would not have this decision floating out there requiring such detail about the accuracy of the computer information itself. This really goes to the fear that someone is hacking, someone at American Express is hacking its own records and creating forged payment history records, which of course is possible with any type of document or evidence. 
recall that this was nothing more than a routine question of authentication that went very wrong because the lawyers involved were not prepared to answer very basic questions about how the electronic evidence was created. I think another good illustration of an unsuccessful attempt to authenticate electronic records is in the case of United States versus Johns, which is a decision from the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals from December of 2018, a little more recent. Similar to the V. Vinhe case out of the Ninth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit in Johns affirmed the exclusion of electronic records absent a proper foundation showing that the computer printouts of emails were accurate and unaltered copies of the original emails. That is, that they were authentic. Why? Because the email printouts were printed 16 years before the trial from an unknown computer by an unidentified person and included copied and pasted instant messages. I think the U.S. v. John's decision is much more on point. You have a case involving facts showing a lot more indicia of forgery or falsehoods that this document may have been altered, and in fact was probably altered, because the document was created 16 years prior to trial, and nobody, not even the party offering the document, could testify about how that document was created. And making matters worse, no one, including the internet service provider, had access to the underlying electronic records. If you take the time to find this case, it's kind of funny because the internet service provider was AOL. Uh, that's how old these emails were. So America Online did not have access to these emails 16 years after they were first printed. Well, I'm not going to reveal my age by saying I used AOL, but um, that's an interesting case. Uh, and of course, I'm just a deal lawyer, but I hear court lawyers like you, Jonathan, sometimes refer to the original writing rule, uh, which makes me hesitate when I hear that in the context of electronic contracts. What is that and how does that come into play in evidence? Sure. And this was the second point about um, the evidentiary hurdles that I wanted to discuss today. The original writing rule is found at Rule 1002 of the Federal Rules of Evidence. This is one of the very last rules at the end of the rule book. And it requires, very simply, the original of a writing to prove the contents of that writing. Rule 1001, however, defines the term original to include, with respect to electronically stored information, any printout or other output readable by sight if it accurately reflects the information. In other words, if I have a traditional hard copy wet ink contract, it's going to require that I introduce the original wet ink contract in court. Also, this is pretty prominent in Florida where I practice, if you want to prove up a note, a promissory note, which is a negotiable instrument under the UCC, you have to produce the original writing, the original wet ink promissory note. Of course, the drafters of the rules of evidence realized in the age of electronically stored information this was going to be a serious problem because 
Electronic records are made of electronic and computerized data, which is not something that I can easily bring to court and show the judge or the jury. So I'm really glad they revised the original writing rule with respect to electronically stored information to make it clear that when we say original, we don't really mean original. You can actually just bring a printout or any other output readable by sight as long as it accurately reflects the information. So even though they lightened up on the original writing requirement, original writing rule in the context of electronic evidence, they specifically tied it into the, uh, the idea of authentication. So sure, with electronic evidence, you don't have to bring in the original because that's just a bunch of data stored on a computer system. Or in the cloud, you can bring out printouts as long as you authenticate them. That's what Rule 1001 and Rule 1002 mean in the context of electronic evidence. This issue actually came up in the U.S. v. John's case that I discussed a few moments ago. The email printouts that were attempted to be admitted into evidence violated not only the rules of authentication, but the original writing rule. Because the offering party could not show that the printouts accurately reflected the information from the original emails, i.e. they were not properly authenticated. In contrast, the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, in the case of United States versus Nixon, which was a case from 2012, affirmed the trial court's admission of a spreadsheet printout of information stored electronically. In that case, the Sixth Circuit held that the printout was admissible because the underlying electronic information would have been admissible, and the simple act of printing out the electronically stored records does not change their status for admissibility. I think this holding really gets to the heart of the changes to the original writing rule in the context of electronically stored information. And it gets to the heart of the purposes and functions of the UETA, that we should not prohibit or exclude evidence solely because it's an electronic form. So when it comes to the original writing rule, although an original of a writing is normally required, when it comes to electronic evidence, the drafters of the rules of evidence decided it was important to make sure that the rules permitted some you know, relatively easy admission of electronic evidence under the original writing rule. And it's interesting to note that they didn't just create an exception for electronic information or electronic evidence to the original writing rule. They just redefined what original means. Um, the court in the United States versus Nixon case also pointed out that although the electronically stored information was printed in response to a subpoena for purposes of litigation, rather than as part of regularly conducted business activities, the electronic information that was presented did not lose its admissibility as a business record simply because it was printed on paper. In other words, the act of printing the electronic information later was simply immaterial. Okay, thanks. Um, my clients also ask me this question. Well, what if you get to court and sure, you can get some things ad admitted. What if the opposing party on your contract under testimony denies or in a deposition denies that they signed the electronic contract? 
how would you demonstrate or prove that she or he actually signed it electronically? So this is a great question, and it, it actually goes beyond authentication to the concept I mentioned earlier, which is attribution. As we saw in the case of NRAFP, to authenticate an electronic contract, you only need to show that the contract could be what it purports to be. But if someone denies signing electronic contract, you're also going to need to attribute the signature to that person, meaning you need to prove that that person actually signed it. This is where good security procedures for creating and storing electronic contracts comes into play especially procedures with multi-factor authentication. Not only will good security procedures help your clients to authenticate electronic contracts as signatures in court later if they go to have to prove and enforce those contracts, but they're also going to be useful in rebutting challenges to attribution, meaning when the other person denies signing the contract. So a good illustration is helpful here. I have a case where... The lender entered into an electronic loan agreement with a corporate debtor and an electronic guarantee agreement with the debtor's principal. During the lawsuit to enforce the electronic contracts, I deposed the debtor's principal, who certainly provided sufficient testimony for me to authenticate all of the electronic contracts, but specifically denied signing his guarantee. Although the lender in this case had pretty good security procedures in place to identify the author of the electronic signature on the guarantee, the principal testified in the deposition that another individual at that company routinely used the same email address and routinely signed contracts on behalf of the company and the principal. So the lender security procedures that were in place were only able to identify and trace the author of the electronic signature by IP address and email address because there was another person at that company who routinely accessed the same email address and routinely signed contracts. The procedures tracing the attribution of the electronic signature by email address were really not helpful. So then we had to focus on the IP address. We were ultimately able to attribute the electronic signature to the debtor's principal by subpoenaing the internet service provider for the geographical location associated with that IP address. Certainly, I think as illustrated by this case, the best security procedures use multi-factor authentication, which would not only include user email authentication, but also include customer-generated questions and answers like what city were you born in, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream. It would use text messaging, one-time passwords, where a software program would send a text message to a cell phone number, and that cell phone user would have to press a button or put in a code, or knowledge-based authentication, like what is your mother's maiden name, or what is your social security number, things that, would, that only the user would know. 
I think some of these additional factors would certainly have been helpful uh, in the case that I had with the guarantor who had denied signing his guarantee and probably would have avoided the expense and necessity to sub then subpoena the internet service provider in many courts because of privacy concerns. You probably are also going to need to have a motion hearing in order entered before you can subpoena an internet service provider for private information such as geographical location associated with an IP address. So it's not as simple as just sending out a subpoena. It can be an expensive process that can be avoided at the loan closing stage if multi-factor authentication procedures are properly implemented. Excellent. Uh, good tips. Uh, finally, are there any other pitfalls in admissibility that relate to admission of electronic contracts you'd like to share with us? Yes, I did want to mention another case that deals specifically with the enforcement of electronic contracts. That's the case of JBB Investment Partners Limited versus FAIR, which was a case in California from 2014. In the FAIR case, the parties – so let me back up a little bit. FAIR was a case over the enforcement of a settlement agreement that was negotiated solely through an email exchange, but no separate written wet ink settlement agreement was signed. And one of the parties defaulted, and the other party tried to enforce the settlement agreement through the email exchange, which is not uncommon. Certainly there's been many times, and we have case law on this in Florida where I primarily practice, where I've negotiated a settlement and I've needed to try to enforce that settlement through just the email exchanges. And I will typically need some type of evidence in the email that the client, the party themselves, authorized the negotiation and entering into the execution of that settlement agreement through electronic means like email exchanges. So this is what happened in FAIR. In FAIR, the parties agreed to negotiate the terms of the settlement by email, which is good. Then they proceeded to have the email exchanges and negotiate a settlement that appeared for all intents and purposes to be a firm enforceable settlement agreement. Certainly in the email exchanges, there was evidence that the defendant, the defaulting party agreed to all the terms of the settlement through email exchanges. And his email even had the typical email signature block on the bottom of it which in most cases is sufficient to um, is sufficient for purposes of an electronic signature. But the court in FAIR refused to enforce the settlement because of one thing. There was never an agreement explicitly to enter into the settlement by electronic means, which is a requirement of the UETA. So although the parties agreed to negotiate the settlement by email, apparently there was no evidence, admissible in court at least, 
to show that they also agreed to enter into the settlement through electronic means. And here's what the UETA says about this. This is section 5, subsection B. It says the UETA applies only to transactions between parties, each of which has agreed to conduct transactions by electronic means. Whether the parties agree to conduct a transaction by electronic means is determined from the context and surrounding circumstances, including the party's conduct. So an additional piece of evidence that must not have been admissible in the fair case or may not have been credible would have been the course of performance between the parties or the course of conduct between the parties. If they acted as if their settlement was enforceable because they had entered into it through an email exchange, that course of performance or course of conduct would certainly be admissible to help prove an agreement to conduct the transaction by electronic means. So although an electronic signature may be attributable to a particular person as it was in the fair case, an electronic contract may not necessarily bind that person based upon the context and surrounding circumstances. Excellent. Jonathan, thank you very much for speaking with us today. And to all of our listeners out there, we hope that this discussion was useful and provided takeaways you can bring back to your company or business. To find future podcasts, webinars, and legal resources, please visit burr.com. That's B-U-R-R.com. If you have any questions or need advice regarding the use of electronic signatures for your business, you can reach Jonathan at jsykes at burr.com. That's J-S-Y-K-E-S at burr.com. And my email is esnow at burr.com. That's E-S-N-O-W at burr.com. Thank you again for joining us and have a good day.